Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kristen Turner, and my guest today is Jake Johnson, author of Lying in the Middle, Musical Theater and Belief at the Heart of America, published in 2021 by the University of Illinois Press. Johnson takes as his subject the artifice of musicals. No one really bursts into song and dance to liven up a simple conversation, and even the historical characters are not true to life. He argues that it is the very unreality of musicals that makes them powerful sites of belief, whether it's a reflection of the beliefs of the creators of the work or what the audiences want to believe about themselves. Rather than using examples from the commercial Broadway theater, however, Johnson brings to life more idiosyncratic productions from the middle of America, from the Senior Follies, a Ziegfeld Follies-like production staffed by older performers, to a reimagining of the sound of music written for the polygamous community called the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At the heart of this book is a meditation on the nature of truth itself. Welcome, Jake. It's wonderful to talk to you today about your book. Kristen, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, this is a really interesting topic, this idea of truth and and falsehood, I guess, or lying in musical theater. How did you come to this topic? Well, I was writing it during um, our famed post-truth moment. And as I, w- I didn't in- set out to write a book about this particular topic, um, or this particular angle, I set out to write about an ethnography of musical theater in the middle of the country. Um, but the more I dug into it, the more these themes really started sticking out as being the most prevalent. And this concept of belief kept coming back um, as, I, as I worked through and visited these various sites in these communities. So I was curious what it was that musicals were allowing people to believe, why musicals, of all things, were being used for that purpose, and how belief manifests in different ways. Obviously, there's religious connotations to belief, but that's not the entire story and not not the entire dimension of what I look at in the book. It also comes across in different uh, political values or um, perceptions of oneself, who, which, who are you? Which, um, what does your heritage mean? What does your background mean? Um, who are you in this world? And how do you relate to your communities that you're a part of? And 
even though the book does touch on things like truth and lies, I really work hard to break the moral binary between the two and to tr- show the fluidity that the the aspects of what make thing what makes something real often has a little to do with what it, whether it's true or not. And I wanted to get at a better sense of that. And musicals were really great angle and a good lens for me to do that. One of the things that really struck me about this book was the way that you used the word lying. So I think of lying as a bad thing, right? And even the, you know, there are little white lies people tell to sort of make make interpersonal, um, you know, relationships a little bit easier to deal with. But, but you really use this word over and over. It's even in the title lying in the middle. And, and I'd love you for, for you to talk a little bit about what you mean about lying and how do musicals lie? Yeah. So lying, well, for the title, it's, it's a bit of a wordplay because lying of course is about deception. Um, but I'm also looking geographically in the middle of the country. Um, so what lies in the middle of America. And then the third dimension is that musicals of all things are central to so many aspects of American identity. And so at the center of so many of these things um, uh, is musical theater. But uh, I guess to get to your point, I mean, lying is uh, something that I started working through as a fluid concept uh, partly because I think that's just naturally how it is. And we talk about a post-truth moment right now as being this, you know, in this, this unwillingness to decipher between what is real and what is not real. Um, what I take as inspiration was Mary Douglas, the anthropologist who um, wrote really beautifully about purity and taboo and pollution. And her famous um, little adage was that um, dirt is not something that is innately dirty. What makes something dirt is what a community determines is, as she puts it, matter out of place. So I started thinking about lies as being narratives, as being stories. And fundamentally, they're stories about a not yet. There's something that isn't here yet, uh, or may never will be. And so I was using Douglas to think about lies as stories out of place that what makes them offensive is not the fact of their storiness, but actually where they are and how they're working. So I use lies as a concept rather provocatively. In fact, I call my book a lie because I think about the limitations of truth as being um, truth as kind of a, uh, a, an exercise in affirming the world around you, looking around and saying uh, rather observationally, this is what is what. And that works fine, um, but in a more or less activist frame of work, frame of mind, where you want to engage a newer world, a world that doesn't exist yet in all of its possibilities, then you have to practice a form of lying, which is crafting space for stories of the not yet, engaging the possibilities of creativity, of imagination, of innovation, and simply being attached at the hip to truth that alone won't get you very far. And so lies, in my in my imagination, become actually quite uh, righteous. <laughs> they become something that will create possibility rather than close it off. Well, I kept saying, I, I have to say, when I was reading it, I kept thinking of Stephen Colbert's idea of truthiness, right? That the idea of something isn't really true, but it should be true. It feels like it's true. And then it does become true because that's how you're feeling. Is is that something I should have been thinking? Like, does does that sort of drive with at least some of what you're trying to get across about lying? Yeah, I think I think part of that is is there. I, I um, there have been some wonderful writings on on lying from um, 
you know, from our, from our witty writers like um, Mark Twain or Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde, in fact, said the problem with America, <laughs> the problem with America is that it believes that its founding father could never tell a lie. And that means in Oscar Wilde's point of view that America was really uncreative and had no real original solutions and was kind of stuck spinning its wheels, uh, being so overly committed to truth. So, yeah, I think there is this sense that um, epistemologically, yeah, we're, we're all looking at the world in different perspectives to such a degree that we see reality differently from one another. And rather than that being the end of the conversation, I take it as the beginning and I started looking at, well, what mechanisms and or vehicles are people using and, and kind of hiring for the purpose of opening up new spaces for themselves in such an environment? And musical theater was a really big part of that. There are other ways to, to lie to oneself, but musicals are so upfront about how fake they are. They are always, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, people don't just burst into song and dance in real life. So there's no way to smooth that over and it's built into the genre. And because of that, um, people have a number of relationships with musical theater. They love it or they hate it because of that reason. But nonetheless, it becomes a very powerful way of negotiating truth and fiction. And you see this happening in an industrial way or a commercial way, like on Broadway with a musical like Hamilton. But you also see this happening in the boonies and in the, the rural pockets of America in what I found to be incredibly surprising and, and sometimes really touching ways. So, yeah, I think there is something about the in-betweenness. In fact, that's the middle that I talk about a lot in the book that is also a play on words. It's a geographic middle, but it's also this liminality, this is in-between as being a really fruitful and powerful position. And um, the more we can resist the urge to frame the world around us in terms of truth or fiction to kind of resist that binary, then we can engage more fruitfully the middle that uh, allows us to um, imagine a little, to, to dream and to actually create the kinds of worlds that we seem to be wanting. In your book, you wrote, musicals are rarely about what they say they are about. And I, I was really struck by that because I, I think that's true. But but I wonder, isn't that true of most art? I mean, do you think there's something special about musicals in the in that artifice or in that way that there's sort of a subtext and and the I don't know, the front text, the, the text that you see and the subtext that you're understanding? Is that is there something special about that with musicals? I think the there's something I'll say, I'll, I won't say that musicals are exceptional in that way, but they are exemplary. And so, yeah, there's lots of uh, film. There's lots of ways we can engage with um, unreality in, in an artistic way. And maybe that's art's function. At least part of its function is to force us to engage with something through artifice. But musicals, um, again, are so, um, so fluid in the, their uh, perceptions of community and in just the way they are set up as a genre, that I think that they do a different kind of work when it comes to deception or unreality. And I use a few examples in the book that are a bit more familiar, um, things like Oklahoma or, or Music Man. Um, Music Man being maybe the more prominent where the hero is a swindler, the hero is a liar, a salesman, a known liar. And we uh, recognize him for who he is from the very beginning. And yet, as Harold Hill works his way through, he becomes the hero of the story. And um, that, that path that musicals lead us on from 
when we arrive in a musical to a community, it's in the middle of chaos. Something has happened or is about to happen that is going to be very disruptive. And we exert all the energy as an audience and as performers to move toward reconciliation. And that path is one that often involves lies. It often involves duplicity. And that's sometimes from the character's perspective. So Harold Hill, for instance, doing that. Or it's from um, the audience's willingness to play along and to uh, reframe for that moment that we are in an alternate universe, an alternate reality. So it's not so much that musicals are um, the only, only game in town when it comes to that. But I also think that musicals, and I frame it this way in the book, that musicals are, are, are unique as a popular music genre in that they are so dispersed. They reach across America's social strata in a way that I don't know of any other genre quite doing. Yes, it's made designed for elite white liberal audiences in New York, but nonetheless, the blue collar um, um, worker in the middle of America is going to their kids' middle, middle school play. So that's not what country music's doing. That's not what hip hop is doing. It's not reaching across quite in the same way. So musicals are are really everywhere, and they are somewhere. And, and because of that everywhereness, they are in the middle of America's consciousness and its path towards understanding itself. So for those reasons, I thought that this was the best. This was a well, maybe not the best, but it's an ideal genre and an ideal space to examine issues of. <laughs> Uh, lies and deception and truth in America because musicals are such a thick part of what it means to identify and belong in America. And it has been for, um, uh, for many, many years. Well, one of the most powerful things I think about the book is the fact that you don't spend all that much time, as you say, you do talk about them a little, but you don't spend a lot of time on the Broadway musical example. And instead you find these communities that um, have been marginalized or even rejected, sometimes for good reason, um, uh, but that still use musicals in their self-fashioning, so to speak, in one way or another. And and that's a very it, it does really go to your argument that you were just saying that musicals kind of transcend a lot of boundaries that other art gets kind of stuck in in one way or another. And I'd love to go through a couple of those examples because they're quite interesting and um, unlikely to be familiar <laughs> to most of our our uh, listeners, if not all of them. So maybe we could start with this reimagining of the sound of music for the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that cult, I think it might be a good word to describe them, and, and also this, um, this retelling of the sound of music. Yeah, it's a very it's a very special example. Um, so this was a production that was put on in the mid-'90s, in rural Arizona, in Colorado City, Arizona, which is right on the border of Utah and Arizona. And this um, is a part of the FLDS um, group, which was a splinter group of the mainstream LDS or Mormon church. And they practice polygamy. And they're probably best known infamously for their leader, Warren Jeffs, who um, was um, a part of an FBI raid in 2008, I believe, in Texas. And he's now serving multiple life sentences for all sorts of abuses, uh, including um, uh, his his involvement in marrying and being a part of relationships with underage women and girls. 
So um, that's the setup for this group. So what's interesting about it is this is a group that prior to the more nefarious qualities of, of what they're known for, were living rather, rather peacefully on their own out in the middle of nowhere. And they had been for a really long time. And uh, what was interesting to me about this is that they were um, not going to Broadway and Broadway was not coming to them. And yet they were producing a yearly, annually, a, a musical. And these were musicals that were not necessarily original. They were drawn from existing structures, but they um, adapted them quite heavily. And what this chapter is about is a home recording, a home video recording of this uh, production of The Sound of Music. And the this uh, community adapts it yeah, using the basic infrastructure and where Maria falls in love with the captain from Trap. But in this instance, the captain is not a widower. He is married. And so Maria, in falling in love with the captain, is falling in love and joining the family as an additional wife. And uh, what's kind of remarkable that I talk quite a bit about in the, in the chapter is how the basic structure of how a musical works is rather unflinching. It is, you, you, there's a family and, you know, romantic lead, they fall in love and there's a romantic song and so forth. Now there was, have you, the, the community takes out some of the songs that existed in the original production and substitutes in other ones. The, the biggest um, one that I focus on is the substitution from uh, the love song, um, somewhere in my youth and childhood, I must've done something good, which is what Maria and the captain sing in the film production. And instead, what's inserted in in this moment of love and admiration is U2, the song U2 from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is what Dick Van Dyke's character sings to his two children. So um, on the one hand, we have this rather suave and sophisticated knowledge of musical theater that's being exhibited. They know that they could substitute in something that already exists that really makes the point that they're trying to make about drawing in more than one relationship. And on the other hand, it's a rather shocking example because we have um, a father-child trio being a love song, being substituted in and making it, turning it into a husband-spouse-spouse love song. And it gives me an opportunity to reflect a little bit on the adaptability of musical theater. And that's what you see a lot happening in throughout the book is that communities take a, take a musical and they aren't trying to put on the musical necessarily for the sake of the musical. They're putting their, the community exists and they decide to put on a show. And that means they adapt it to meet whatever demands they need. And this is a rather extreme example of that, but it's nonetheless a very common practice that you see happening in middle schools and high schools and in religious services and churches kind of all over the country. So that's the setup. I mean, it, it's, it, they, they named it the resound of music and the, the musical suffers quite a bit from not being like the original. And yet it works quite well by pulling in, examples of musicals from uh, mostly from film they're there that's how this community would have known of musical theater they would have known it through film so other rogers and hammerstein productions um chitty chitty bang bang how to marry a millionaire fiddler on the roof those are the things that they have at their disposal and those are the things they use um one of the things that you point out and i can't remember now if it's in that chapter or another one is that there is a history of groups led by these charismatic but scary leaders like Warren Jeffs, David Koresh, Charles Manson, they all were drawn to musicals. Can you talk a little bit about why you think, you know, musicals, uh, uh, 
they were attracted to musicals. People like that who are these charismatic, but ultimately really destructive leaders as well. That's the more unnerving and surprising uh, discovery I found in working on this book, uh, because Warren Jeffs, it turns out, was in this production that I'm describing of The Sound of Music, and he played, of all things, a Nazi soldier. Um, And this was before he became the leader of this group. So we have this um, rather terrifying window into this dawn of a tyrannical world and seeing this community engaged, and here he is playing a Nazi. Um, I think that's actually part of the deal. I think a lot of charismatic, at least in America, charismatic cult leaders or community leaders are often, they often arrive at that position through the auspices of theater. And I think the reason why is that theater and religion are functioning on a similar level at this point. Um, Theater is about, theater is an investment in the not yet. It's trying to build a world. It's it's telling a story out of place, to use my example from earlier. And uh, so is religion. Religion is lying in the way that I use this term, which I have to say is a provocative way of looking at it, but I don't mean it in the same sense that maybe we usually carry it. I think about religion as being largely invested in something that isn't here yet, whether that's heaven or whether that's a more a more perfect kind of world that we have to aspire toward. And it's for that reason that I think it's an easy parlay from the theatrical world where you are trying to convince as an actor an audience to to come with you on this story and this into this new world that you alone are crafting and then a charismatic leader who then decides to convince an audience of people to join them on another venture into another world so yeah i I think there's a lot of examples um, of the more iconic uh, and nefarious uh, kind of cult leaders in America being drawn or maybe cutting their teeth in some aspect of the theatrical world, sometimes very brazenly, as in they were literally on Broadway and then they become into this world. And other times, like Warren, this example with Warren Jeffs, where he was doing this work, but no one really was knowing about it outside of the community. Um, you mentioned religion, and that's an, another chapter where you, I mean, the FDLS is, is a religious group as well, but this is a slightly uh, more mainstream religious example. And that is the, I believe it's called the Sight and Sounds Theater in um, uh, Branson, Missouri, uh, which is, uh, you know, a sort of middle America community, which has become the center, it sort of of musical theater and also just sort of country music, you know, so you you go, it's a destination to go and listen to a certain kind of musical performance, I guess, that is often deeply enmeshed in Christian religious practice and theology. And so this theater puts on musicals about biblical characters. So I'd love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about that example. Yeah, so Sight and Sound Theaters is uh, in the business of putting on extremely lavish productions of a really high level and value um, in the middle of, we might say, nowhere in Branson, Missouri, where unless you're from the region, you may not be aware of it. Um, So Sight and Sound Theaters, uh, this chapter is about a production called Samson, which takes the story, the biblical story of Samson and Delilah and uh, portrays it in a musical musical fashion. It's an original musical, so it was created for this purpose and for this community. Um, I can maybe start by describing just how enormous this production is. Uh, the theater is slightly larger than most Broadway houses. It's about 22,000 to 2,500 seats. 
And the theater, the stage itself is 300 feet wrap around. So it's, uh, and the set pieces are often four stories tall. So we're talking about a very large and very dynamic theatrical experience. In fact, when I was there, I was told that the stage, the dimensions of the stage and the backstage area were intentionally designed to be the exact same dimensions as Noah's Ark, at least according to the Bible. So the, the, this, this experience is, is of biblical proportions in lots of ways. Uh, there's also live animals, there's camels, there's horses, there's donkeys, there's all sorts of theatrics. Um, there, um, there are people kind of hanging above you. It's very high quality. And I think that's what struck me first as being so remarkable. Um, the story itself is, um, it's, it was, it it was compelling to me because I saw the show many, many times and I did a lot of interviewing and just chatting with the people who were there with me, who I was sitting near. And, um, I, I focus a lot on this, uh, this couple who were there, they were in their mid sixties. They were there for, uh, on their, on their honeymoon. And they mentioned that what they liked so much about sight and sound theaters was that it was biblically accurate. And if you look at the production with the camels and the theatrics and the acrobats, there's, it's hard to square how this is really at all what is happening in the Bible. And that's what was compelling to me was how much that, that anthem came back again and again, this, this, this belief that what they were experiencing in a musical was um, not only accurate, but biblically accurate. And that was its virtue. Not that it was entertaining, but it was primarily because it was telling something that was biblically true. And so I, I and, and there's many examples of how I how the musical isn't really being true at all. It's um, inventing characters. Um, obviously, like people are singing songs in a way that they wouldn't have been doing in, a, in any kind of biblical fashion. And the story of Samson himself is it would take 10 minutes to read. And here you have a two or two and a half hour production. So obviously there's going to be enhanced experiences with it. So I was kind of caught between this perception of a musical uh, in the minds of many in the audience as being authentic. And that's not at all how I think of a musical. And I don't know if many people really think of musical theater as trying to tell or being truthful or honest. I think often the perception is that it's, um, it's very kitschy and very campy and probably not being very honest about much. So that was my that was my angle in to try to understand a bit more what what and why this evangelical Christian community was so attracted to musical theater. And it, it, what I kind of discover was that there was a lot of, um, as I mentioned earlier, a, a kind of collapsing of religion and theater already because people are are investing in the not yet, um, but also throughout um, many Christian myths and many Christian values, there is the sense of theatricality. I'm thinking of uh, the story of Jacob and Esau, um, and their father Isaac. And Jacob inherits the birthright from his father by pretending to be his brother. He steals it, so he tricks his father, who's the prophet, <laughs> and he becomes the namesake Israel. And so, what do we do with that information? What do we do with the fact that God seems to be okay? with pretend. Um, and then the other examples of Jesus, uh, Jesus being somebody who's a slippery figure in real life, he tells parables that don't seem to be straight shooting. He, um, people mistake him. His, his friends don't recognize him. And so, um, and even C.S. Lewis, who writes uh, so beautifully about, in Mere, in Mere Christianity, his book, Mere Christianity, about uh, the Lord's Prayer, suggests that the Lord's Prayer was designed for Jesus to or to give regular people the opportunity to, to pretend they are Jesus. That was the whole goal. And that you, 
by pretending to be Jesus, you immediately realize you are a mere mortal. And that humility is what then allows you to access the divine. So you have to go through this path of pretend or a fakery or lie in order to arrive at something that's actually much more meaningful and true. You can't get to truth or truth of the capital T or God on it on its own. You have to go through deception. So I think what that shows is that religiosity does have this parlay with the theatricality. And that that kind of relationship was so beautifully captured in Sight and Sound Theaters because people were investing in unreality with such effort and with such uh, such willingness that biblically accurate and musicals were spoken in the same same breath. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, that was a very interesting example, for sure. And and maybe the last one we can talk about before we turn to other topics is one that you are actually part of as well. You mentioned at the very beginning that this started out as sort of an ethnography, and I guess we can tell that since you are actually a character in the book, um, because you were involved for several years with um, something called the Senior Follies. So another um, marginalized community uh, you know, the people who are aging are marginalized, not just in regular American society, but very much in any kind of theatrical thing where so many people's careers end when they no longer uh, look uh, young anymore. And can and, and particularly musical theater, can you keep singing? Can you keep moving and dancing the way that a young person does? So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Senior Follies. So for a couple of years, I was a music director for the Senior Follies. I'm a vocal coach, and I wear a lot of hats, and I'm, in, I'm a practitioner of musical theater, so I should say that at the outset, and that's why I was doing this. Um, and this, uh, this kind of production is not unique to Oklahoma City, where I was when I was, when I was music directing. This is uh, something that's propped up in, all over the United States as uh, a kind of a veritable movement. For our production, it was uh, senior was defined as fifty five and up. Although most people in the in the cast were um, in their late seventies and early eighties, so much older than that. So the the gist was that we were going to put on a musical review or an original production that featured only aging performers, and that it would be mostly billed for an aging audience to gather and to reflect on the virtues and the values and the hard truths of aging. And that included being an empty nester. It included loss. It included um, depression. It included efforts to try to reclaim youthfulness. Um, and I think largely the theme that comes out a lot is this uh, this this um, shared experience with loneliness and isolation. And that that really hit a strong parallel for me in thinking about musical theater, which, as you mentioned, is such a young person's genre for reasons that are understandable and other reasons that are not quite understandable. It's very common to find there's plenty of aging characters in musical theater, but they're often played by um, 30-year-olds or 20-year-olds. So again, there's a believability that's lost. And um, 
a lot of the performers that I worked with were seasoned musical theater performers. They had had careers performing sometimes on large stages and sometimes locally in community theater when they were much younger, but had eventually been aged out. And this was a way for them to reclaim something of that of that genre for themselves and also to try to, to reframe the narrative of aging in America away from what's called the narrative of decline, which is that you reach a peak of your life at some point early on. And after that, it's uh, all downhill and everything just gets worse. And uh, there's a lot of work in what's called age studies to reflect on that, that the narrative often does some destructive work in America because people start seeing themselves and believing that narrative as, as, as uh, fatalistic, whereas um, that's not really true and not necessarily true. And so that that's kind of what's happening in this production Um one one gimmick that we use, and I, was, I say we because I was a part of the creative team for this, was to construct mashups. And this was a way of, of piecing together a song from over here with a song from over there, and sometimes of very different styles. And what that what that allowed us to do was to it becomes kind of like a meta meta concept because the mashup is uh, which is you know kind of popularized by Glee. If you ever watched the television show Glee, uh, what the mashup does is take something and uh, make something new out of unoriginal uh, material, and that's more or less what I think the Senior Follies is also doing. It's trying to take disposed of ideas and values, older people and to try to repackage re, re them in such a way that it causes us to see a freshness and a newness about them, something original, and to see value in it. And I think that's really what the community was seeking, was to be valued and be taken seriously in a way that I think is not u- unique to Oklahoma City. I think aging people in this country are not treated well, and they're often ignored. And this was a way of trying to reclaim that. Um. I, you were talking about using the mashups and sort of trying to change the musical or, or the songs they were using or whatever for the Follies to to work for this group and for their um, for their goals, and um, you do argue several times I think throughout the book that there's um, that musicals are flexible, that they are transformed easily. And I have to say what I thought about when reading that was I went to the Oklahoma production in 2019 or so that won the Tony as uh, for revivals that was like nothing like any other Oklahoma I had ever heard of. It's incredibly dark. It has this whole sort of horror movie thing going on. It, you know, nothing like the kind of pie in the sky, you know, optimism of Oklahoma that we, that I certainly associated with before I went to that production. So, you know, that certainly is, is fodder for your argument. But, but again, I wondered, is there something special about musicals that makes it unusually easy to reshape them um, and to refashion them? Um, or are, is that just, uh, is it one of many kinds of arts that, that lends itself to that kind of transformation? You know, that's something I've been reflecting on a lot because um, obviously I was writing from the perspective and kind of advocating for musical theater in this, but the limitations of what this genre is able to do versus other ones is something that I'm still compelled by. I think some of it's sociological. I think people don't either they, they really hate or they really love musicals. It's hard to find somebody who's kind of in the middle about that. Um, 
Yeah, musicals are also middle brow. And so they that also is part of the reason why they have had a hard time being uh, kind of further in the center of our attention. And yet, and yet musicals are such a firm part of what it means to be an American. You find communities that you would normally not associate at all with musical theater being deeply invested in it. So I think part of that is just the unique nature of something that's hidden in plain sight um, outside of the critical purview of most people, even most scholars, even most pop music scholars. Um, and yet it's being maybe therefore is being used in such interesting ways because no one's really paying attention. I think musicals also are rather simple structures. They behave rather traditionally to one another. The, there's something predictable. Um, uh, this is not true of every musical, of course, but if we take a, you know, with broad brush, you, you move from chaos to cohesion. You have reconciliation often symbolized by members of warring factions, so Laurie and Curly, right? That, that mar- getting married, somehow they symbolize union of the entirety. And that's a very strong theme that you see in so many musicals. Even musicals that end tragically, I'm thinking of like West Side Story, for instance, there is still the sense that we are better as we are moving past this because we've learned a lesson. And so musicals are mostly in the comedic mode. They're mostly thinking about resolution, reconciliation. And and so because they're moving all towards the same goal, they're using the same tools to get there. And so that's why, you know, with the FLDS example, you see replacing one love song from one context with a love song in another context. It's not that hard to do once you recognize from the bird's eye view, how a musical is working, it's just, oh yeah, these are all modular pieces. I can move them around. And I, it's not that musicals are not complex things. It's just, they function um, similarly to one another um, to the point that, um, and maybe to my, to my point earlier, that musicals are such a part of a fabric of America that people are just familiar with it. And so it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to, to shape them and adapt them. We're well-practiced at it. And if you only think of musicals as um, as a part of like the work concept that musicologists have inherited, where you think of, oh, Oklahoma is always the same, and our effort is to is to somehow revisit what Rogers and Hammerstein's genius was trying to reclaim or trying to, to create. Um, middle school, middle high school productions of Oklahoma in Oklahoma do not look like that, right? They are all, you have examples where Aunt Eller is um, a freshman in high school and her niece is a senior because no, because the aunt doesn't sing very much. And so a younger classman can do it. So we have all these kind of wild, um, flexible, malleable aspects of musical theater in practice that is much more, more common than say a high school orchestra putting on, uh, you know, playing a movement of a Mozart symphony, where more or less it's going to be like the Mozart symphony as a work concept. Musicals are just not treated that way. I think they're much, it's adaptability is the name of the game. Well, you know, I work on opera in the 19th century a lot. And opera used to be that way. Like in America, you could go to an opera that had five people in it who were actually singing in four different languages. They pull in the local choir from a church to sing the chorus part. And they'd have three people saying lines that, you know, were local actors. And, you know, God only knows what that sounded like. (laughs) It was just a mashup. But I think your point about how you know, an opera, you can do that, but we don't do that anymore because it's not accessible enough 
to do that. We don't know the stories. People think they can't sing the music. It's too hard. You know, all of that, even though they have a lot of those same sort of predictable qualities that musicals have and, and even some stories that are very familiar. People just don't know they come from operas, you know, that kind of thing. But musicals have maintained it's, it's their place closer to the center of culture, you know, and, and they also, I think as a business, you know, they, they create um, these easier versions so that you can, you know, you can do Oklahoma with a middle school where um, there's nothing analogous like that for a, a middle or, or high school group to do Carmen, for instance. So they, they, it's built into the, into the, the economy now, I think, of musicals as well to be flexible that way. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think especially if you look at the non-commercial aspects of this, um, whereas you're, you're right, I mean, opera wasn't always as commercially an endeavor as it is now. And so lots of different kinds of communities were engaging in it. If you only think of musical theater as Broadway, then you're not going to see this adaptability. <laughs> um, I was, uh, my, my dear friend Stacey Wolf wrote a brilliant book called Beyond Broadway, which takes up musical theater and community theater and regional theater throughout America. And in, in conversation, we were talking about how that's that's the distinction between the kinds of communities we're looking at in our work and what's happening on Broadway is that in our work, the community exists already and they decide to put on a production of Into the Woods versus Broadway, which they decide to put on a production of Into the Woods and then they build the community around it. They cast it on purpose. They build an audience. And what's malleable between those two examples um, is in the first place, the musical and in the second place, it's the community. And so commercial spaces, community takes second rung to what the work is. And that's maybe a given. That's maybe a natural thing to kind of reflect on. But musicals are, there's such a strong amateur quality to musical theater in, in the broader sense, the kind of broader ecosystem of musical theater in America, that adaptability is is crucial. You have to have musicals that can be moved around or else they won't be, they won't be produced. And I think the production of the revival of Oklahoma you're talking about is an exception because we're how, now we're looking, we've kind of aged into this genre enough to where we can reflect on something that was, I mean, Oklahoma historiographically is the beginning of musical theater as a book musical. And you can, you can change or you can reflect on it in such a way that it becomes something new and different and not for the sake of just reviving what was once before. It's different. Um, on the other hand, as you point out in the book, there is also a real um, standardization in musicals. You call it the mezzo voice, and you talk about how um, you know people tend to sing the songs exactly the same way every time, despite a rhetoric of and uh, and among professional musicians on musical theater about finding your own voice, about find, being true to yourself, being authentic to your own voice and vision. And yet somehow they all sing the same songs the same way. Can you talk a little bit about that tension there of that malleability on the one hand and that sort of uh, real standardization on the other? Yeah. So w where I happen to teach and work is in the middle of the country. And it's, it's uh, Oklahoma City University is, has a strong legacy for producing musical theater talent. And this is uh, the curiosity about musical theater is that the places, the programs that produce top stars on Broadway are often in the middle of the country, way far away from 
the actual commercial center. So places like Cincinnati or Michigan um, uh, or Oklahoma. And so uh, I work at one of these places and uh, work among this kind of uh, oeuvre of, of training. And it's particular. I think musical theater, despite its fakery, <laughs> um, musical theater performers don't see it that way. They see that it's actually deeply honest and they're, they're aspiring to sound in a way that channels their individuality in their voice. And that's a very important aspect for many, many performers. And so the kind of training, the rhetoric surrounding the training for, vo- for musical theater voice often is about honesty and truth telling. And uh, as you mentioned, a kind of discovering your unique sound or unique your unique voice. And that's the hook. And then, um, and yet um, on Broadway, what you're experiencing is that um, the commercial demands of that space are such that you can't have all these unique voices um, because the it's you have need to do eight shows a week and inevitably people burn out and they spin out and they have to be replaced and you can't replace them with somebody who is wildly different from who you once had. So the reality on the on the outcome level is that most of Broadway voices uh, sound the same, and most Broadway bodies look the same too. This is another another discussion. Um, so you have a bit of a bait and switch, is what I call it, where you have on one end of this, you kind of enter this Broadway voice machine, um, believing that you're entering in order to discover something true about yourself, and that's what you have to offer to the world. But on the other end of that, if you're going to be hireable, then most of the time you have to actually be a chameleon and adapt. And that distinction was interesting to me because, it, again, it's about it's about belief. It's about believing in something that's unique to about you and in the reality of this industry, which is about um, uh, collective and kind of commercial demands, which don't often square with individuality. So that voice, um, that Broadway belting voice, is something that you also talk about a bit. And you, you talk about the fact that this, that this voice carries a certain meaning for people. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, what does the belting voice mean um, for the audience? So uh, this is often the case that... Uh, the, the climax of a musical moment often comes in what's called a belted sound. And this is largely what you hear with women, but men can belt too. Um, this is the iconic roles of, say, Alphaba in Wicked, um, uh, or even older sounds like Ethel Merman from an earlier eras of musical theater. It's a very brassy, very twangy sound. And it's uh, it, traditionally it was called belt because it was in the middle range of the, of the lower end of the voice. But... Um, Musical theater composers have written higher and higher levels of this, and so um, belting is a is a very common feature of musical theater training, and it's it's um, not universally appreciated. Belting is a very uh, narrow kind of laser focused sound. It's not got a lot of color to it. It's a it's a to to be blunt, it's kind of a boring sound, but it's a vibrant sound at the same time, and so um, and it's also risky because the voice can, if not done properly, it's, there's a lot of musculature that can be involved that might do damage to your voice over long term. And you see this with pop singers as well. Pop singers can belt as well. Um, so all of that was kind of packaged in with this idea of the belt being this really honest 
honest sound. And women, especially whenever they belt, are believed. <laughs> They're believed um, to be like this is this is where the truth is happening. It's a somehow contained in this wildly free, exhilarating, um, extreme sound, and almost primal. Right. And I think it's kind of associated in that way. And outside of a musical context, like I'm thinking of like a cabaret circuit where you have musical theater performers playing, um, you you're you're experiencing a, a performance. And then when a belt suddenly happens, that's when people start snapping their fingers. That's when they, they're agreeing. Oh, yeah. Now, now I'm experiencing something real. It's always so remarkable to me because it's such a departure from where we uh, it's as if the rest of it was fake, and now we're into the real moment. So the belt serves an important function in that uh, kind of truth-telling mode of musical theater, um, and yet it's also very fabricated and very, um, uh, uh, well, I guess, uh, risky. It has a lot of risk associated with it. And in the book, I look at a the kind of evolution of the belt uh, through Curly, the character of Curly in Oklahoma, all the way from... Alfred Drake, who was the original in 1943 to the 2019 revival that we were talking about a little bit earlier and looking at a snapshot of uh, various performers, iconic performers who have carried that role and how they have, uh, how that, how they represent this evolution of a belt where there was once a rounded sound that was prioritized similar to operetta. And eventually that becomes flattened and um, pushed more forward in the face to be brassier. Um, and so the belt becomes this kind of dominant narrative function in musical theater too. So I, I, I'm using it also as a kind of uh, vehicle for thinking about the evolution of musical theater in this country, about moving away from a more individualized belief center to more of a collective enterprise through, uh, through the kind of industrial commands. Well, I did wonder, however, sort of efficient, I guess it's a chicken and egg question, but do people believe the belt because the f- story is framed so that the person you're supposed to believe is belting? <laughs> or does the belt come first and writers are like, oh, that's a sound I should apply to <laughs> to the character that I want the audience to to believe the most, to, to be most invested in? Do you, do you have a sense of that in looking across the development of theater? Like, you know, which came first, so to speak, or is that sort of an impossible de- designation to figure out? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I have an answer to it yet because I think they're they're probably symbiotic. Um, if you know, I think if you think about like Ethel Merman's sound, it's not to me an attractive sound at all, um, and it becomes kind of um, um, mockable. <laughs> this very wavy and heavy, heavy sound that's uh, kind of in the in the nose. Um, it's not attractive. Um, but now that same sentimentality is the exact opposite. Um, I guess maybe the takeaway that I would say is that regardless of the chicken or the egg, which one came first, by now audiences um, come to a theater ready to believe that sound when it happens. So they, it's like they're coming to a church or religious space waiting for a particular moment of rapture that they know is going to happen at some point because they have the expectation of that. So their framing of truth is done in musical theater orally and that they know that this is when truth happens, regardless of whether it's the most important part of the song or the story or not, that's where they've already decided. 
And that's, uh, I contrast that in this chapter against like, uh, especially when we talk about women, against women in uh, outside in the real world who so frequently are not believed for their stories, whether about trauma or whatever kinds of experiences they've had. So we do not in this world have a framing of believability when it comes to women, but in musical theater we do. And the belt is that mechanism. And that's a curiosity. Yeah, and in fact, sometimes their voices are actually used to say they shouldn't be believed. They're too whiny. They're too high. They crack. They're complaining. They're hysterical sounding. You know, I'm thinking of of Hillary Clinton, for instance. Her vocal timbre was often used as a way as something that sort of discredits her. She's we can't really believe her because of the way she sounds when she speaks, and um, uh, so it's very. It is very striking that in musical theater, it's actually the sound of their the vocal timbre is actually what makes someone trust, trustworthy. It's quite, quite striking. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what uh, Nina Eidsheim so beautifully talks about the the cochlea as being not innocent, right? That it curls around it curls around expectations that sometimes are harsh and brutal. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I think we'll wrap it up there. This has been an amazing discussion. I think we've had a lot of the highlights of your book, and uh, I certainly urge people to read the whole thing to, to get all that we've left out in our conversation, but certainly a fascinating book and one that came out not long at all after your first book, uh, which was also on musicals, but specifically about Mormons and musicals, Mormonism and musicals. Um, what do you have on tap now that you have uh, finished this book? So I am um, overseeing a collection of essays on Las Vegas and music and myth. So there's a similar theme that I'm exploring from this book into that about thinking about sites of fantasy and um, otherworldliness in America. And so that's coming up soon. Um, Lots of ground to cover. I'm really excited about that one. other things in the burner, but I'll leave it at that. That's what's coming up most most urgently, I think. Well, that sounds like a great idea. I have a student who's talking about that tomorrow for her final project. How I wish that it was already out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yes, well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today about your book. My name is Kristen Turner. This is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network, and I've been talking to Jake Johnson, author of Lying in the Middle: Musical Theater and Belief at the Heart of America, published in 2021 by the University of Illinois. Illinois Press. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kristen.